0: One, two, Here's two, two one, two. Mark.
1: Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland-Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com.
2: Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour.
1: Sour strikes in the cold night air and it's on. At
2: Quarry Bank High School in Liverpool, as the bell rang to signal the lunch break at the end of the morning lessons, the teacher promptly closed the book he'd been using with form 4C, and with a cursory nod of his head in the direction of the classroom door, he dismissed the class. Four boys who'd been sitting together at the back of the room were among the first out of the door, heading directly for the bicycle sheds. Quickly locating their bikes among the hundreds in the racks, they unlocked them, leapt into the saddle, and pedaled furiously out through the main school gates and down Hart Hill Road. It was a cool, sunny day in April 1956, the first day back at school after the two-weeks holiday for Easter. These four boys flying down the hill were John Lennon, aged 15. His friend and inseparable companion, Pete Schotten, age 14, my best friend, Don Beatty, and me, Michael Hill, both age 15. While we'd been friends for years, John and I had known each other longer than we'd known the other two. In fact, we'd attended primary school together from the age of five before going on to the same grammar school when we were eleven. According to the school rules at Quarrybank, we were supposed to remain in school during the lunch break and eat the hot meal provided in the canteen for which our families gave us the weekly payment, five shillings or so every Monday morning. But instead of being well-behaved students who obeyed the school rules, the four of us got into the habit of leaving school at lunchtime and cycling down to my house about a mile away. My mother had returned to full-time work. She was the manageress of a ladies' fashion shop in downtown Liverpool when I was 10 or 11 years old, so my house was free of parents on weekdays for the whole time I was at grammar school. This and the fact that we lived not far from Quarry Bank and not much further from John's house made it a convenient place for us to meet at lunchtime, during term, and any time during school holidays. During our fourth and fifth years at Quarry Bank, 1955 through 1957. It became a regular routine. We spent lunchtimes together at my house on most school days. With this intriguing scene, Michael Hill begins his unique insider's version of life at Quarry Bank Grammar in Woolton, England. The story of his school days, the school days that he shared with Pete Shotton, And, of course, the infamous John Lennon. Now, Michael Hill pulls the reader into his own personal memories of John. You know, there are lots of books out there about the Beatles and John Lennon. But this is the story from someone who was there. The story of the unique leader of the Quarrymen, the boy obsessed with rock and roll. But how did John discover rock and roll? And how did he feed his passion for the music? And what was John like outside of the songs that we all know? What was he like in elementary school, in high school, in the regular, everyday moments of his life? Well, Michael Hill knows. And he tells you in his very interesting, brand new book, John Lennon The Boy Who Became a Legend, which is selling via John Lennon Legend dot com all one word John Lennon Legend dot com, and here to tell us about this new book and to share that insider's look at John's childhood in 10 years is none other than author and Quarry Bank comrade Michael Hill. Welcome to the show, Michael.
0: Thanks, Jude. Thanks for inviting me uh, on your show. It's uh, a great pleasure to have a chance to talk to. Um, people in the U.S. who are following um, your program. um, People might wonder why, after all this time, we've just celebrated 50 years uh, of the Beatles, um, you know, how how the hell it's taken all this time, and and could there possibly be anything new? I mean, it's interesting to to observe that um, I was born 10 days, uh, 10 days, um, yeah, 10 days um, before uh, John Lennon, so... I'm the age he would have been had he not been cut down at the age of 40. So I'm 74, heading for 75, so I've been retired about 10 years. It's only in retirement that I really decided to tackle this project, and I wanted it really as a tribute to John because there's been a... You know, I read somewhere that there have been more books written about John Lennon than any other person who'd lived in the 20th century, in other words, more than... Written about Winston Churchill or or famous people like that, right? Certainly, there've been a hell of a lot of books, and um, some very good books. But in amongst them, there there are inaccuracies, and the problem is they got in early. Some of the earlier books, and they were picked up by the later books, and um, you know, a bit like the childhood party game, uh, and you pass the story around the room, and it gets distorted. So there's a lot of inaccuracy. So I wanted to go to great trouble to make sure that what I put in the book was accurate
1: mm-hmm. and
0: also to draw on my memories. Uh, looking back on John, um, I can only say that he greatly enriched uh, my experience of growing up, particularly my teenage years. Um, and we, we literally laughed our way through senior school. <laughs> I, he kept on laughing for five years uh, after three and a half I pulled up and I guess we started to go our separate ways at that point because I then worked for a year and a half to do what I should have been doing for five years and but he kept on going right to the end and left um school the boy least likely to succeed. Well
2: <laughs> that's the, true. You
0: know, how wrong can you be? <laughs>
2: that, yeah, that's very true. But well
0: he was fun to be with and um I hadn't realised until much more recently, in fact, only when that famous uh, what I call the boys on the beach uh, photograph, the photograph of John Leonard's ten with 10, 11-year-old boys uh, in the bathing costumes taken by uh, a school teacher in innocent days, if you took a photo like that these days, probably locked the teacher up. <laughs> really
1: these,
0: were, these were more innocent days and quite... Um, Quite harmless. We were on a school camp, but it was only when that photograph was published and it um, it, it hit the British uh, newspapers that really brought everything back to life for me because uh, John Lennon was standing next to uh, Jimmy Tarbuck, yep. who's a high-profile comedian uh, in the UK, and, and standing just behind them was Ivan Vaughan, yep. who five years after the photograph was taken was the boy. Uh, at, at a different school because we were at primary school, uh, he was the one who brought uh, Paul McCartney and introduced him to John Lennon. And standing next to Ivan was me, the tall boy with a big grin.
1: That's right.
0: And um, you know, who would know what was going to happen five years later? Because five years later that we really came to. Um, uh, I came to play a role that I hadn't envisaged uh, in John Lennon's life. So not only did he. Um, enrich my life. Um, But I think looking back and by his own admission, uh, I had a a very pivotal role to play in his life.
2: Yeah, you did. And it's so interesting because as you said, this is information that hasn't been released before. I spent 20 years doing the research for volume one in the John Lennon series. And at the time that I did that research beginning in 1986, your story wasn't widely available. I knew about you, of course, through Lennon, Ray Coleman's book, but did not know how pivotal a role you played until I read your book. So for the people who are listening out there, this is information that hasn't been regurgitated a thousand times. This is brand new John Lennon information, stories you haven't heard until you're sick of them. This is some new territory. So you definitely want to get this book, and we'll give you an example of some of the things that you haven't heard before, because, Michael, you didn't just go to high school with John. You actually went to Dovedale Primary with him. Tell us a little bit about John in those days back at Dovedale Primary. What are some of the very early memories that you have of him?
0: Well, we're going back to the age of five, um, and John... uh, what we discovered as we got to know him at the new school was that he'd already been asked to leave or politely asked to leave from his previous school. We didn't know why and because he didn't tell us and we didn't press him. But it was interesting from day one. He was aggressive at the beginning, um, not so much in the classroom but in the playground. Yeah. And um, so he was a boy that tended to stand out uh, from the crowd. Uh, but we got to know each other and you you discover that he had a well we found we had a pretty common sense of humour. Um he he was high profile, let me put it that way, through <laughs> down the road. If there was something going on in the schoolyard it would quite often involve him <laughs> um scuffling and but mostly his his fights were verbal. We came to recognize early on that he had a good command of uh, the English language. And we realized, looking back, that that's because of uh, he was reading, reading ahead of his uh, years. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of his um, um, confrontations, if you like, in the schoolyard were handled with words rather than with his fists. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but... Um, you know, we we were friends at Dovda. We were not as close as we um, uh, later became. There were other boys um, in primary school who, who were closer to John, and, and so I was able to tap uh, the memories of a couple of them, which are in the book. There's some fascinating stories, one about John Lennon and the boxing ring yeah, uh, with Jimmy Tarbuck, this little boy who went on to become the high-profile comedian in, in the United Kingdom. Um Pretty pretty interesting, but, you know, who would have known, um, say, from those innocent days what it was all leading to? And, you know, I, I used to say to my, well, my wife used to say sometimes at parties that if the conversation was flagging, she might say, well, my husband went to school with uh, John Lennon, and that usually got people's interest. <laughs> and, and then I would usually say, well, let, let's get it right. Actually, John Lennon went to school with me. Oh. So that got a laugh. And if I felt it in the mood, then I, I, I would go on to say, well, a lot of other boys were at school with John Lennon, but my my real claim to fame is that I'm the guy who introduced him and turned him on to rock and roll.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that got a laugh, but nobody ever believed it. Yeah. How could you prove a thing like that? My wife was polite enough to believe me, but it was quite unprovable. Uh, it was only when Pete Shotton's book was published after John was killed mm-hmm. uh, that Pete, looking back, you know, twenty years before, um, over twenty years before, he recalled a particular incident at my house which um, altered and changed um, John Lennon's life. <clears throat> That's probably the pivotal part of my story in my book. But that was Pete Shotton. There were there were four people: I, myself, and John, and Pete Shotton and Don Beatty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you know, how, as they say, how could you really prove it? it? It's only after that boys on the beach photograph was um, uh, taken that we um, uh, that this got into the newspapers in Australia. I moved to Australia in 1970 from having already worked overseas for six years before that. Right. And um, it was in the, the, the it was in the book uh, Albert Goldman's book, which <laughs> is not. Um, not liked by a lot of John Lennon fans, um, the lives of John Lennon. In in that book, though, and this was brought to my attention by somebody in Australia, who had a, who was on a community radio program, two hours every every week called Let It Be Beatles. So I did an interview for them, mm-hmm. and I told him that about the about the. Um, you know, turning John Lennon onto rock and roll, and he said, we had a big library, we'll we'll look that up. So he found Goldman's book, and Goldman had an interview uh, printed in his book with John Lennon himself. Mm -hmm. It was John Lennon confirming, and even remembering the color of the record label. So John Lennon describes exactly that particular moment, you know, and I only discovered that years after he'd been killed, so... That kind of brought it all back to life for me. But anyway, that's a long way from your question, Dabda Road. Um, John wasn't all, you know, riot and uh, <clears throat> larking around at Dabda Road. He did quieten down. And, um, you know, I, I ended up as head boy of one of the school schoolhouses. Uh, mm-hmm. John Lennon, we both passed the examination that you needed to pass to go on to grammar school. And um, so, you know, we, we both ended up with... Um, you know, quite quite uh, good behavior reports uh, as we left Dovedale. And getting to car going, well, that was another story.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned talking about Albert Goldman. He, um, Albert r- reported so many things factually that other authors missed. And he found out things and he found interviews and facts and data that other authors didn't uncover. I think the only complaint that people had with Albert was that he would see the color gray and see it as rat gray instead of dove gray. But factually, he always got it right. It was just his outlook on life that was a little bit darker. But, you know, factually, you really can't argue with the things that were in his book. It was just his outlook. Now. You, your book, yeah, I so
0: never, I, never, sorry, I never knew about Goldman's book. This was the point, it was yeah. years after it was published, and that photograph appeared in the press. And that, you know, that brought me to Goldman's book, otherwise, I didn't know anything like, about right. Goldman's book.
2: But he found it was, you,
0: it was almost like John Lennon speaking to me from the grave.
2: I know,
0: you know, it was so strange. And...
2: It's a, it is amazing, it's really amazing. Well, you were one of the very few people who actually. Saw or had an encounter with Mimi Smith firsthand. Lots of people report about Julia. Very few people say yeah. anything about Mimi. What were your memories of her?
0: Well, actually, nil. Uh, it's a bit like Paul McCartney. I read somewhere he said I, I didn't know Mimi. You know, I was right. just, a, just a little kid. Um, my recollection that I mentioned in the book—the uh, very early days of Dabda—was just a. Uh, I mean, you've got to think that this is a memory from, from a boy who was five or six years old. It's right. a child's memory. These were the days when the mothers came and collected us from school. We had railings all the way around, metal railings around the school. The, the, the Women, they were all women. There were no men in those days. Okay, no fathers came, always mothers. Right. Or in, in Mimi's case, the auntie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... That's the only recollection I I had of seeing her, not even talking to her, and that she stood out as as somebody. She was older. She would have been about 10 years older than the average age by the time she took over the de facto adoption, uh, never never a legal adoption, but the de facto adoption of John's. And she got married late, uh, so she was well into her 40s, you know, with a five-year-old, not usual these days but it was in those days where most women had children um, in the, in their early 20s And the only other t- recollection I had of Mimi was a very rare occasion, I, I can only remember once going to Mendipson and, and ringing the doorbell and Mimi uh, not admitting me into the house but John <laughs> coming to the door John didn't want to entertain people uh, at his house I think he was glad of the opportunity to get out Mm-hmm. Probably the one that went in um, more than anybody else would have been Pete Shotten, Joan mm-hmm. Elizabeth, around the corner. Uh, John was countless times in my house, um, but if I went to his house, he would come out and we'd go and play somewhere in the neighborhood. So I really can't uh, add anything to Mimi um, that hasn't already been.
2: Well, you did. You added something that no one's ever said before, because the concept of her coming to pick him up at school had never been mentioned before.
0: John, John, he lived quite a distance away from the school. He was much nearer to the one from which he was asked, well, which he was expelled.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, My house where I was born and and grew up and where John came later on to listen to my music and uh, <clears throat> when we were age 14 and 15. That, that was at the other end of Dovedale Road, where the, the school was Dovedale Road. Right. But John, right. Had, John had about a quarter of an hour walk, then he had um, uh, probably about 20 minutes um, on a on a tram, or what you'd call a trolley
1: mm-hmm.
0: trolley car, to get home. So it would have taken him probably 45 minutes um, right. to, an, to an hour to get home, where I would have been home in 10 minutes.
2: Sure, Sure, but nevertheless, your house was very, very similar to his. You said that the two were very much alike, Um, and you point out that these were hardly the working-class hero homes that John sings about. Tell us, tell us about your two houses.
0: Okay, well, of of the two, um, John's would have been uh, somewhat higher standard, slightly larger. They were both semi-detached. now, semi detached houses uh, were, always were built with uh, with gardens. And so there's two houses with a division. So with a sep- they're separate houses, but they're joined like Siamese twins. And
1: right.
0: Now, a lot of other houses uh, are, are terraced houses. If you look, for example, where um, um, the Ring of Star was, that, that was very much a poor uh, district of the city and the houses were all in a row, a terrace. There were no um, no gardens in the front and no gardens at the back. We both had long gardens at the back, which meant that the houses, you were fairly close to the house next door, but the ones behind were way big, way bad, because you had two long gardens. Right. Um, a lot of those houses were owned. Some of them were, were rented. Um, I think John's house, they rented at the beginning and then bought it. Mm-hmm. The same with the uh, same with my house. Um, the the neighborhoods were and still are um, pretty pretty good neighborhoods. Lovely. So Liverpool had a lot of rough neighborhoods. Some of the worst ones were destroyed in the wartime bombing, and people were moved out to the outer suburbs like Speke, um, which is where Paul McCartney was living. And they were a lot of new um, housing estates. Estates were built, so these were. Mm-hmm houses that belonged to the um local government and uh, they were lettered, to subsidise rents to poorer people. Right. And the, the school itself, uh Bank, was set in an even more um, next next to Calderstones Park.
1: Beautiful the houses up
0: there were even more even more uh, even bigger and uh, quite a quite a wealthy neighborhood yeah. in those days and still uh, still in these days um were um uh, Jimmy Tarback, again, where he lived. He lived in Queen's Drive, just round the corner from Dabdo Road, a big house, much bigger than John's and mine.
2: And Brian, too, Brian Epstein. English. Oh, Brian, Rides absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yes, that's right. So we were certainly, and there, another telling thing in Liverpool was the accent, the poorer parts of the city. Uh, this, they'll talk like that, you know. They talk through <laughs> oh, right the way. I like it. John never spoke like... We, we. I mean, we probably had a twang... Uh, I remember when I phoned my mother from Australia one time, hadn't spoken to her for some years, and I picked up a slight... You know, I could tell she was from Liverpool. Not a strong accent, but a little bit of intonation. But John, uh, I mean, when he... We, so we didn't really have it at school, but when he um, started hearing him on the radio before I moved away from England... And he was starting to get famous, he was being interviewed. And then he was talking, oh, with an accent like that, (laughs) (laughs) which really was um, put on. But I think it would have been put on because of the places where the the group was playing. They were often playing in very rough places. And if if you stood out as being somebody who wasn't from that neighborhood, um, you're quite likely to get roughed up.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It was a bit of a defensive mechanism. Yes. Also, I think it appealed to his sense of humor too. He had a great sense of humor he did you know, yes. to uh, to do that um the book that his first wife and just not had rec- quite recently died, but I think she wrote two books but the yes. the the, yes. F- the first book she wrote I read that and it was just amazing because she she was getting to know John if I'm correct when he was about nineteen Mm-hmm. Around about that time, and we really parted company when I was when we were about seventeen or eighteen. Yeah. Probably the last time he came to a party at my house, he would have been eighteen. But reading her book, and it was amazing, and it was so accurate because this is exactly the John Lennon I knew.
1: Right.
0: I mean, it's the same guy. It's just like he'd moved from me to her in terms of friendship. Yeah. And she made the point in that book that he didn't have a Liverpool accent.
2: No, not at all. And in fact, Mimi said, John, you're not a little scouser. Why are you talking like that? And he rubbed his fingers together to indicate for money. You know, it's the yeah. people expect it, and that's why I'm doing it for money. Well, it We're getting close. We only have about 20 minutes or so left. So let's get to that crucial, pivotal story and the role that you played in helping John discover rock and roll. Tell us what happened.
0: Yes, this is really, the, it's really what you can think of as the missing link. Um, um, not not that long ago, we had a, a, a film that most of your listeners would have seen, or many of them would have seen, called Nowhere Boy. Right. Which was a film, uh, and as a film, it was an entertaining film. I enjoyed it. Um, I made the mistake of um, sending an email to... Um, Julia Bird. It was based on Julia's book, Imagine This. And I said I'd enjoyed it. Well, I got a, a rocket back because she didn't enjoy it. uh Oh. Because she, but she sold she sold the film rights without any control. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Julia when she was writing the book. I happened to be in England, and we were introduced. It was quite an amazing um, thing for me because she really looked like John, mm-hmm. um, facially. And uh, it was good, and uh, I was able to give her some help for the book. But her book, because of the age difference, and, and she was—I um, mean, she was only eleven when the mother died. She hardly right. saw John after that. He was seventeen. The um, you know the, um, the the story about how he really came to music—it's it, been grossly oversimplified. All you hear is that he liked Lonnie Donegan. he was turned on by Elvis Presley. And the next thing is he's um, formed a band and a skiffle group and, and off we go. Right. Well, that's, uh, at, you know, the tip of the iceberg. What what really happened um, was that I was ahead of him, not in terms of talent, but in terms of interest in music, mainly through having a, a brother four years older. Right. And my mother had invested in a, my parents, separated at this point. My father had gone my mother invested in a radiogram, a really big sort of uh, wonderful sound with a multi-change, um, eight-stack eight um, record changer. Wow. Playing 78, 78 records, of course, the heavy ones. And I started collecting records uh, when I was about 14, which was when I started delivering newspapers. and A bit of a difference with me and John, because yes. I went out to earn money. He, ne- he never no. liked it money to arrive. He was a lazy bugger really.
1: Yes, yes.
0: But anyway, um I got into the music and starting with jazz and then I don't know how I got onto Hank Williams, I really can't recall, but it wasn't because he was in the hit trade. But I liked Hank Williams records and I bought five or six of them. Gradually as I got to know John better really when we ended up in the same class uh, and he was demoted at the end of the second year at high school and he and Pete Shotton came down together and Pete was funny in his book he said you know they went from grade uh, two down to grade three and if it had been a grade four they would have gone to the bottom of that but yeah. three was as low as they could right. go. Right. And I was in three and... Um, I cruised along in three, and it was great. I didn't have to work very hard, and I still came out pretty well. But anyway, um, th- they started to come uh, home at lunchtimes from school.
1: Uh-huh. I should
0: explain here that John uh, John's very closest friend was Pete Shotton. Mm-hmm. It was always Lennon and Shotton, never never Shoppen and Lennon. Right. And so. And I don't ever remember being with John Lennon. I was with him countless times. I don't ever remember being with him on his own. In other words, when people cool. the, yeah. they were like like the twins. And yeah,
2: Shannon and Lawton.
0: <laughs> yeah, and my best friend at school was Don b T. If you look at the cover of yep. my book, on Don Beatty standing between me and John Lennon, laughing at one of John's jokes just as a camera pen passed.
2: He by, is laughing.
0: He really by, is. Well, we're, we're all laughing. Well, yeah. John's got a deliberate uh, scowl on his face at the camera and looking, doing his best to look like a teddy boy. <laughs> but, um mostly the music sessions—they they nearly always were the four of us, except in school holidays when John and Pete would turn up uh, on their own. They used to cycle, cycle round and just arrive at the house. So they started listening to my record collection, which was initially jazz and then um, folk music and what well, I call folk, country and western, and then coming into Lonnie Donegan and, uh, and pop music. So we had um, you know, Frankie Lane and, mm-hmm. and Johnny Ray and those sort of uh, top 20 singers at the time. And John was interesting looking back because at the beginning he was quite reserved. He sit and listen and, and enjoyed it but didn't really join in. I loved to sing and I loved to sing to the Hank Williams um, records and he came to like the I think records that told a story
1: which uh-huh.
0: folk music tends to do. Sure. And I think Hank Williams wrote a lot of his own um, a lot of his own material. But anyway, um, they're very good words. Some of them were quite indecipherable. In those days, you couldn't um, go as you can now onto Google and just get the uh, the lyrics of songs. Sure.
1: There
0: was no way to do that. We we had to just play the record over and over and over and try and work out. And some of the creole things that are on a um, lot uh, on on the Hank Williams record are quite indecipherable even now because yeah. it's, it's, they're not proper words. And, right. But anyway, uh, I mean, th- this really had an influence on John. One record that I bought, and it, it, it was not all that well known, it was by Mitchell Turok and the Louisiana Hayride.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, amazing. And this was called Caribbean. And very, very good words. Um, you know, I'm sorry, what was it? I'm sorry, Chris, to talk about you like this, but you were 500 years too soon.
1: <laughs> I wonder. Want-
0: Got some of the lyrics in my book, but I was told I couldn't because I'd have to pay a whole lot of royalties um, to do that. So uh, it's a pity because the the lyrics were quite relevant. Now, John had a great command of words, and I I go into a lot of this his humour and how he played with words and turned them around. You know, I'm I'm thinking of a song like uh, I Saw Her Standing There, you know, I'll, I'll Never Dance With Another. When I saw her standing there. We used to we used to dance dance to that, you know, that that particular record. Sure. A bit later on. we used to sing in you know, a tribute to John, I'll never dance with your mother. <laughs> That's the sort of thing John would do, he'd twist the words around.
2: Right, right. Anyway,
0: now John John listened to I mean we, we got into rock and roll, of course the early ones were Bill Haley. John didn't have any record player at home.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, he saw his mother a little bit, but it was just, just as it appeared when he's just starting to get to know his mother and to visit her more regularly. Mm-hmm. She had a little record player. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, we got into Elvis. Uh, to me, Elvis didn't, you know, even now looking back, uh, I don't regard him as a hard rock and roll singer, right. more more of a ballad singer.
1: Yeah.
0: But, uh, and I didn't even buy, um, you know, the, the, the dynamic, well... The, the record of um, Heartbreak Hotel.
1: Really? I,
0: didn't, I didn't particularly like it. I was never in my collection. <laughs> but, um, you know, John, it, it became a habit, and, and we were there three or four days every week listening to records about an hour. And one particular time, you know, the, the two twos had made a four. The two friends, the two, two groups of two, we were four friends. Right. Three of us went on a school exchange holiday to Amsterdam, And for a reason I wish I could tell you, I can't because I don't know why John didn't go. Right. Most unusually, Pete Shotten went without John. So the three of us were there and about a few other boys from school. It was a group of 30 boys, 30 girls from grammar schools in Liverpool. We went off to Amsterdam on a school exchange Mm -hmm. and we stayed with Dutch uh, children. We were paired off and stayed in their homes and they came back to us in the summer. We went there at Easter. Right. And I bought a record. I, I was lucky with my Dutch friend, and we we, we did a few things together. And we went to a record shop, and I discovered this record, which had just come out about two days before. It had literally just been published, and it was uh, released on Ronix Records, which was um, a label out of uh, Belgium, I think. And... The record hadn't wasn't released in England. wasn't released for about another maybe another year or so. Mm-hmm. This was Little Richard, Long Tall Sally, which to me was you know right what I call in your face rock and roll like wham, 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 wham. that's right, just amazing. <laughs> so I bought this record. Oh God, I've got to wait till John Lennon hears this. <laughs> and I took it back, and it's funny because I. I must have planned it as to make an impact because I, I didn't tell the other two that were with me. So they didn't know about it either. And I packed it in my suitcase and we went back uh, to Liverpool and a few more days, holiday, we went back to school. And um, the first day when they came to me after that, um, I played this record, John, without telling what it was. Uh-huh. And and it really, you know, we, we put it on and put it on loud and boom, boom, boom. And then we all looked at him to see what he was going to say because he sat there in silence. And he was speechless, which was so unusual. That's why Pete Shotten remembered it all those years later. Uh-huh. To get John Lennon speechless was quite quite remarkable. <laughs> he said nothing, and it was Pete Shotten made a comment. And then we played the other side, and the other side was slipping in the slide.
2: Oh, yeah, one of his favourites.
0: And I, I found it... Anyway, That that really... John, by his own admission, that he could think of nothing after that. And, and he used to, he said in his interview that he he was dreaming, almost having nightmares, that he had Elvis with the record label was blue and he had Little Richard and the record label was yellow. And it was like the blue versus the yellow. and It was like a conflict. How could he love both of them?
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> but it was within a, a few weeks of that that he went out and got his first guitar. Yeah. And it's very interesting when the when the band got famous, um, you know. And the, when you look back at the three tumultuous tours of the United States, the the first, um, you know, concert at, at um, Washington, I think, and then the last one at uh, Candlestick Park. And the last uh, song they played at each of those concerts, which which became Paul McCartney's feature because he could reach the notes better than John, but was long term selling. Absolutely. And years later, the very, very last ever performance by John Lennon, when he did three songs, and the very last one, he had all the songs in the world to choose from, and the very, very last one turned out to be his last ever public performance um, was slipping and a That's right. And uh, to me, that, that was like 10 years later, and that almost completed the loop of his um, career.
2: It did. It really yeah. did. And you think about the yellow and the blue...
0: To my my lounge room,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: I felt my old house should have a blue plaque on the wall, you know, a bit like Mendips. but uh, it should, yeah, really, uh, there's a photograph in the in the book of the of the house from the back from the back room where we used to gather, yeah, but they they're good memories, good memories,
2: so. yeah, and you know so you that- take the the blue and the yellow from that dream and you combine them, and what do you have the green apple? okay <laughs> you know oh yeah. that's and his color is yeah. sergeant pepper color green that's true, that's true. That's i love true. it well you tell so many stories that the birthday parties you tell of two specific birthday parties that john yeah. went to and we won't tell people because we want them to buy this book but those stories i was laughing uproariously at those two stories the the amazing story that you tell about what happened in the winter in your homes, could not believe that. That was uh. mind-boggling. All of the adventures that involved you and John and Pete and the whole Cory Bank group, the professors, there's so much in this book that people have never read before. So I really want people to get this book. Tell them again, Michael, where they can get it.
0: Okay, they can only buy it online, and they need to go to uh, John Lennon Legend, as if it's one word, JohnLennonLegend.com, and they'll find uh, all the details of the book and how to buy it. Um,
2: JohnLennonLegend.com. Yeah. Do you have a, a? Are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that?
0: Well, I am on Facebook, and there's also an email address in the book if people want to contact me. But there is a. I'm on Facebook, and there's a Facebook page for the book as well.
2: And it's so, Michael, Michael Hill.
0: Yes, it's um, yes. That's a good question. Well, mine is just Michael Hill, um, Michael A. Hill, I think.
2: Okay, on Facebook.
0: And, and the and the website is, is just the name of the book, I think. John Any uh,
2: plans to be marketing your book on Amazon?
0: Well, maybe, yeah. Um, we're looking at that uh, at the moment. Um, you know, I'd love it to be out in retail outlets as well, but uh, that's not uh, on at this stage. We also plan, a, there is a plan to do a, um, you know, an electronic um, version of it.
2: Right, a Kindle or Nook or an e-book. Yeah, yeah. Right,
0: yeah. good deal. But, uh, just as I hope when you read the book that you had a few laughs, because there's a lot of humor in the book, huh?
2: It's great. It, it is a funny.
0: Interesting.
2: Life. people will love the it the
0: characteristic was... of Liverpool was to laugh at adversity
2: Yeah.
0: you know and the Liverpadlins have a great sense of humor
2: yeah they do mm. and it shines through I mean I was I thought I knew all the stories after researching John's life for 30 years of my life I thought I knew all the stories and you blew me away you had things in I'm there sorry, I, said, I
0: should, have, should have written my book 30 years ago but I was too busy <laughs> uh, you know I mean just as John got You know, they got famous and they they went off to the United States on their first tour. I went off to work in Kuwait and Afghanistan. I was six years away in Asia. I might as well have been on the dark side of the moon. Right. By the time I came back, they'd stopped performing. Right. And within within two two months, I migrated. I went to Australia. I've lived in Australia ever since. So I've been a bit remote from uh, the Juama story. really never got out before.
2: Well, I want to thank you for writing it and for making it available, and when I go back and Revise should have been there, believe me, I will include all this in footnote and document and make sure people know to go to your book, because we want to do the compendium, the whole John Lennon story, and I want to tell that you are the person that introduced John to rock and roll, and thank you. Thank you for doing that.
0: Yeah, dude, thank you for having me on the show.
2: Well, you have been such a joy, and people, get out there, johnlennonlegend.com, get this great book, John Lennon, The Boy Who Became a Legend, and hopefully, Michael, will we see you at the Fest for Beatles fans in Chicago, maybe?
0: What date is it? It's August.
2: It's the second week in August, and we'd love to have you there.
0: Well, maybe get a bit of persuasion. I might come over. The problem is the tyranny of distance. It's quite a long trip uh, to come from Australia. Is but uh, I, I could be tempted. Send oh, me, a, send me, send me an email and do do a sales job.
2: I will, I will do that. We'll get Mark and Carol Lepido's working I, on getting I, you. I've coming. never
0: been. I've never been to Chicago. It's on my bucket list.
2: Oh, it's great, <laughs> and we would so love to have people. Would adore getting to talk to you. So thank great. you very much for joining us tonight, and all of our listeners, go out and get that book. And until next week, Tera, and shine on.